What's up, Tiaholics? Welcome back to the Tea on Crime. It's your host, Britt. And I'm the co-host, Jessica, wife and true crime skeptic. Just as a reminder before we get started, the views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in this podcast are simply our own and are only presented to educate. We've linked the case sources in the episode notes below. Hold on real quick, you guys. We're jumping into an ad. This is episode 13, and this week I'm telling you the story of Catherine Knight. I want to give a warning that this episode might be disturbing for some listeners, and please take care while listening. Also, if you're eating your lunch, you might want to put that away for later. While I was doing my research, I made the mistake of eating, and wow, I really regretted that. (laughs) Oh, this is a very interesting warning. It is, but at least I put it in there this time. I'm very intrigued. (laughs) Good thing you're not eating. Most lovers' quarrels end with an apology. But for Catherine Knight, murder and mutilation were the end result. Before the horrific act that would take place, Catherine Mary Knight was marked by violence and sexual abuse early in her life. Catherine was born on October 24th, 1955 in Tenterfield, Australia. Oh, wow. You really searched far for this case. I did. I thought it was about time. She was the product of a scandalous affair between her mother, Barbara, and her father, Ken. Barbara was already a mother of four boys with another man named Jack. She met Ken through her husband. Jack was Ken's co-worker. They lived in such a small town at the time that when news of the affair broke, it rocked their small conservative town of Aberdeen. In order to get away from the gossip of the town and feel like they could really have a chance at starting their lives together, Barbara and Ken decided they were going to move to a town called Mori. Mori. Isn't that pretty cool? Like the TV show, the old TV show, Mori. There was a TV show called Mori? Yeah, it was Julie Chen's husband, the Chinese news anchor, caster. What? She's the one that hosts the show Big Brother. Right. Yeah, her husband was on like a TV series, kind of like Jerry Springer, but without the the craziness. It was, oh, it was I know more, what you're talking yeah, about. Like, I had no idea that the was her husband, though. Really? The results are in. You are, are the not father. the father. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, anyway. I know what you're talking about. Okay. Maury is a four-hour drive from Aberdeen. Ken and Barbara together had a set of twin girls named Joy and Catherine. Catherine was the younger twin out of her and Joy. She was born a half hour after her sister. Oh, so are they identical twins? Yes. Oh, well, because they're two girls, so they would be Yes, they are. In 1959, when Catherine was four years old, Barbara's first husband, Jack, passed away. Once he passed away, the boys ended up moving in with their mother and Ken, It was basically a big blended family and a house full of kids. Knight had a chaotic childhood. Her father was a violent alcoholic who raped her mother multiple times a day. It's been said that oftentimes Ken would rape Barbara up to 10 times a day. Jesus. Isn't that horrible? And this is the person that she left her husband for? Yes. Oh, choices. (laughs) Knight claimed that she herself was sexually assaulted by several family members until the age of 11. She never did accuse her father, but instead insisted that it was done by several other family members. As in, I'm assuming her siblings? It never came out who exactly it was. I don't think that she would say who exactly it was, but she made it a point to say that it was not her father. Did she have a lot of brothers or like half brothers or whatever? Well, remember, Barbara was a mother to four other boys before her and Ken got together. So So she had four boys. Okay. Four brothers. Barbara was very vocal about this abuse that was happening. 
but unfortunately she was vocal with her daughters. So from a very young age, Catherine had a twisted mindset on the idea of what love really looked like. Barbara would tell her daughters all the time how terrible men were, how awful sex was, and really just painted a very negative picture for them of all relationships or any kind of intimacy. Oh, that's really sad. Yeah. Catherine would say later in life that her mother had told her that if a man ever tried to make a sexual advance of any kind at her or attempt to have sex with her to shut her mouth and stop complaining. Wow. Yeah, can you imagine being that young and this is what you're being told? I mean, that's, it explains a lot as the story goes on, but it's just all very twisted was that this, you would put that into. Was this in like the, oh, this was in the early 59s. Okay, 1959-ish. Right. Right. Okay, got it. Catherine was known to be a bully at school, mostly focusing her efforts on smaller children. There was a time that Catherine physically assaulted a small boy while at school. However, when she wasn't acting out and treating the other kids this way, it was said that she was a great student and would win many awards for good behavior. No, that that actually makes sense. Did you know that a lot of students will, well, not students, but a lot of individuals will do that if they are being abused? You know, that's like the, it's the cycle and they always, in psychology, they always talk about breaking the chain. So anybody who is heavily abused coming from experience, right? Speaking from experience. Anybody that is heavily abused sexually, physically, anything will then ensue, become a bully and act out those actions until they decide, I don't want to be my parent moving forward and they break that cycle. But it usually will translate into that abused child's children and it just moves forward in the cycle. Right. Kind of like a control thing, I assume. Yes. Yeah, they feel out of control at home, so they go to school and can control something. Yes, that's why she would choose smaller children. Right. She never learned how to read or write and decided she was going to quit school at the age of 15 to work at a clothing factory as a cutter. She would cut the fabric for the factory. She wasn't at the clothing factory long before she got promoted. Once you were promoted from the position of cutter, the company would gift you a set of butcher knives. When Catherine received these knives, she was so excited about it. She was excited enough that she took the set home and hung the knives above her bed. What the hell? (laughs) Isn't that a random gift, though? I mean, butcher knife? I don't know. I guess it's whatever. I'm just seeing red flags. (laughs) Yes, there are going to be a lot of red flags. Sexually abused, bully, knives above it. Yeah, okay. All right. (laughs) This was a tradition that would continue into every home she lived in, knives above the bed. Catherine was asked why exactly she would do this, and she said, so the knives would always be there just in case she needed them. One year later, she would end up landing her dream job at a slaughterhouse, cutting out the internal organs of animals. At the same time, she met a man at this job that would become her first real relationship and her first marriage as well. This man's name was David Kellett. You, I don't really like where this story is going. If I'm following it. <laughs> it's going to be a great story. I I did give you fair warning. I'm so glad I'm not eating something because I, I have a feeling this is going to get really escalated really quick. It's going to get really red flaggy real it's, fast. It's already red flaggy. <laughs> I'm scared. Prior to meeting Catherine, David had a pretty chaotic life as well. Oh, good. That, this is a great, <laughs> great combination. Yes. 
David turned to alcohol at a very young age in his life, and at the time he met Catherine, he was heavily drinking. It was affecting him so much that he ended up losing his job at the slaughterhouse. Catherine and David ended up getting married in 1974 when Catherine was 19 years old. On the day of their wedding, the two pulled up on David's motorcycle while David was heavily intoxicated. David would later go on to say that it didn't matter how intoxicated he was that night, he will always remember a piece of advice that Catherine's mother, Barbara, gave to him that night. According to David, Barbara told him that, quote, You better watch this one or she'll fucking kill you. Stir her up the wrong way or do the wrong thing and you're fucked. Don't ever think of playing up on her. She'll fucking kill you. Wait, the mom said this to the guy? Yeah, so Catherine's mom told David this on the night of their wedding. Uh Pulled him aside and this is what she said. (laughs) I feel like this is something your mom would tell me. No, it's not. (laughs) Just kidding. Can you imagine getting married and your spouse's parent comes over to you and tells you this about their own child? I feel like that's saying a lot. That's not the best start to the marriage, I don't think. Dear Brittany's mom, I'm waiting for this conversation. Would you stop it? I'm just joking. On their wedding night, Catherine attempted to strangle David to death. Jesus, what? Do you want to know why? Why? Because he would only have sex with her three times. She literally attempted to kill him because he only had sex with her three times pretty impressive for a night full of drinking i would say oh in one night in one night so she attempted to kill him oh i can only imagine what type of sexual relationship they would have with her yes this was really the start of the downward spiral that was the marriage of catherine and david they welcomed their first daughter melissa in may of 1976 but prior to that there was another incident where catherine smacked david upside the back of the head with a frying pan after he came home late from a dart competition that he was playing in the finals for. Wow. David ran out of the house and collapsed into a neighbor's yard. He was treated for a fractured skull. Wow. Right? The police wanted to press charges on Catherine for this, but Catherine was able to convince David not to. Poor David. I can only imagine because I know right in the States, I'm sure especially around this time, if he would have said I'm being abused, a lot of people probably would have completely emasculated him and made fun of him and said that he was lying. Oh, for sure. But it obviously was bad enough that the police were trying to convince him to press charges on her. Mm -hmm. And then she was able to turn it around and convince him not to, which is really sad. Yeah. David left Catherine for another woman not long after all of this took place and moved to Queensland and began his new life. Well, good for you, David. It was about time. On the day that David left Catherine, Catherine was seen walking with her daughter Melissa in a stroller and was violently swaying the stroller from side to side all throughout their walk. Okay. Yeah. Like, can you imagine that? You're just watching this lady basically throw the stroller one into the other like that's normal. This was reported and because of this, Catherine was admitted to St. Elmo's Hospital and she was diagnosed with postpartum depression and spent several weeks recovering in the hospital. After Catherine was released, she took Melissa and placed her on train tracks and left her there. What? Yeah, placed her baby on train tracks. After she left her daughter on the train tracks, she went back into town and stole an axe. She walked all through the town waving this axe around and threatening anyone that came into contact with her that she was going to murder them. And she was released from this hospital? (laughs) Yes, she was. What kind of healthcare system 
does Australia have? <laughs> Obviously, it's very similar to the ones in the States during this time, but... Luckily, there was a man that had been near the train tracks and was able to grab the baby off the tracks. The man did say that the train was less than two minutes away before he grabbed her. If he hadn't been around, Melissa probably wouldn't have survived. How sad. So... Thank God that that man was there. Can you imagine being her daughter growing up and knowing all of this? No, it's horrible. It is very horrible. Due to the axe situation back in town, Catherine was arrested for that and placed back into St. Elmo's Hospital, where she was able to sign herself out the next day. I just, I have no words for this. (laughs) After she was released from the hospital a second time, Catherine made it her mission to go and find David. She did know that he was living in Queensland and started a whole new life. Now, Catherine isn't able to drive. She went and found an innocent woman and slashed her face and demanded that the lady drive her to Queensland and threatened to kill the woman if she did not. The woman put Catherine in the car with her and the two of them began driving to Queensland. The woman ended up pulling off to a service station and was able to run from Catherine and went up to the employees that were working at the service station and told them to call for help immediately. Upon realizing that the authorities had been called, What does Catherine do? She grabs a little boy and holds him hostage. Oh my god. She threatened to kill him, but by the time that the cops showed up, they were able to convince her to let the little boy go. She eventually did. She gets arrested again, and this time is sent to a different psychiatric hospital. Well, thank goodness, because obviously the first one was not working out. Was not working out for her. When they were literally setting her up to be able to kill David, does he die? (laughs) We'll get there. Oh my god. (laughs) This is where Catherine disclosed to multiple nurses that her ultimate plan was to murder one of the service station employees that work there because he had previously done repairs on David's car in the past. She also told the nurse that her plan was to go to Queensland and kill David and his mother. The hospital alerted David so that they could keep him out of harm's way. Well, good. At least somebody's looking out for poor David. (laughs) Are you ready for what David did once he received this news? He and his mother moved back to Aberdeen to take care of Catherine once she was released from the hospital and work on starting their life together again. A fresh start. They never got divorced in the past, so they basically just started all over. Oh, no. What kind of person? I mean, what a great person. This woman is trying to kill you, makes it her mission to get to you, and you come back and take care of her. But she clearly, you have to recognize, though, aside from her being a complete psycho, there's a reason, right? She has so much past trauma that she did need some help and I'm sure just needed a little bit of compassion and empathy and hopefully it doesn't stab him (laughs) in the back, no pun intended. (laughs) Definitely, but I mean, shout out to David for doing that. That takes a big person to know someone is trying to murder you and ruin your life basically and come back and take care of her so good for him got stabbed to death with those knives above (laughs) her bed (laughs) the two ended up moving to a different town and they had a second daughter together four years after that Catherine left david oh she moved back to her parents house that was located in aberdeen a lot of back and forth here during this time Not long after she moved back to her parents, Catherine ended up injuring her back while at work, and she was placed on disability. During this time, she also qualified for government housing. Catherine and the girls moved out of her parents' house and started their new life together. In 1986, Catherine meets another man who is also named David. Oh, okay. But this David is David Saunders. 
David was a 38-year-old minor, and their relationship moved quick. After a few months, David moved in with her and the girls. Even though David moved into Catherine's house and moved all of his belongings, he still kept the apartment that he had prior to meeting Catherine. This ended up being good news for David because Catherine would be her usual self and get jealous, cause fights, and David would go back and stay at this apartment from time to time. Okay. I'm going to give a warning here that the next part we're discussing involves animals, and it might be hard to hear. Please take care to this part while listening. In May of 1987, David had a two-month-old puppy, and Catherine slit the puppy's throat in front of him and told him, if you ever cheat on me, this is what I'll do to you. David and Catherine had a daughter together in June of 1988, and after she was born, Catherine and David purchased a house. Where on earth? <laughs> just move forward i can't i don't i don't understand what's happening there's a lot there's a lot happening in this case and it's horrible why wouldn't you run can you believe that i mean i know we always say that people that do things like that to animals clearly go down the road of being you know all these murderers that happen they all have a past of doing that but how horrible to watch to watch that happen right in front of you and her to just No, it's normal. It's fine. Let's move on. Let's go buy a house together. I wonder if he stayed with her because they had a daughter together and he felt he had to protect her. I I don't know, but shout out to these men that dealt with her because she is a lot. I think they were probably looking out for the girls because that would be the only reason why I would stay with some crazy A. This is just, this is a lot. (laughs) It's been said that Catherine had quite the eye for interior design. And she decorated their house in animal skins, knives, and pitchforks, horns, and animal traps. What a homey decor. I'm getting very Ed Gein vibes. <laughs> I'm, I'm terrified right now. The downward spiral is apparent all throughout her relationship once again with David. But the final argument that really started things off for them was when Catherine hit David in the face with a clothing iron. She stabbed him in the stomach right after. This caused David to move out and leave his daughter with Catherine. It's been reported that David went into hiding for this, but he wasn't very good at it. Catherine kept locating him. David went to visit his daughter and realized that Catherine had placed an order with the police against David for domestic violence (laughs) and stated he was a threat to be around anyone living in the house. This really is the end of David Saunders and Catherine's life. Now we're going to move on to the 1990s and Catherine meets a man named John Chillingworth. They have a relationship that is going to last about three years, and they have a little boy together. After the three years of their relationship, it ended because Catherine has an affair with another man named John Price. So try and keep up with me. There was David, David, John, and now another John. So we have a thing for double names. Okay. We, <laughs> <All right. laughs> we definitely do. John Price was born on April 4th, 1955, and was the father to three kids. He was described by everyone that met him as the type of guy that everyone loved. After Catherine and John began dating, Catherine moved in with John in 1995 to his house. John was aware of Catherine's violent past, but their relationship seemed to be going really well. Their first real problem that was reported in their relationship came in 1998 when John told Catherine that he did not want to marry her. When Catherine found this out from John, she went as far as getting him fired from his job that he worked at for 17 years. She sent John's boss video footage of him stealing from his work. They were expired medical kits. So, of course, John is pissed because the woman that he's in a relationship with is turning him in. John kicked Catherine out of his house, but several months later, they get back together again. 
John didn't let Catherine move in the house this time, though. Now we're going to talk about February of 2000. This is when the first notable physical attack of John happens from Catherine. Catherine stabs John in the stomach. He files a restraining order against Catherine at this point. He told his co-workers that if he didn't arrive the next morning, it is because Catherine killed him. When John arrived home from work on February 29th, it was a leap year this year, he was surprised to see that Catherine and his children were gone. It was later reported that Catherine sent all of the kids off to have sleepovers at their friend's house. John, thinking that he basically had the night to himself, since Catherine is gone, all the kids are at their friends for sleepovers, he feels like he has a night to himself. Oh, John, I feel like you were in for a surprise. (laughs) So John goes and hangs out with a neighbor, and he ends up coming back home and going to bed at 11 p.m. Sometime in the middle of the night, Catherine came into John's home. Catherine has been reported to state that when she arrived at the house, she sat on the couch and watched some TV, after which she took a quick shower, and after that, her and John had sex. The next morning at 6 a.m., John's neighbor noticed that John's car was still in the driveway, which was strange because John normally left his house prior to this time for work. The neighbor called his work and told him that his car was still in the driveway. Since there was a past history of John discussing with his co-workers that if something ever happens to him, it was Catherine, his co-workers decided to head over to John's house and do their own welfare check on him and make sure he was okay. The co-workers and the neighbors start knocking on the door and realize that there is some blood residue on the front door. Upon seeing this, everyone decides it's best if the cops are called. The police arrive at the house and make their presence known. They knock on the door and there is no response. The police decided they are going to enter the house through the back door. Once they walk into the house, they find John's mutilated body lying on the floor. Catherine was in the house, but it's been reported that she had taken a lot of pills, but she was physically there. Catherine had stabbed John 37 times in both the front and the back of his body. Good lord. I'm going to warn you one more time that the following details are horrible, and please be advised that it gets very detailed. I know. The medical examiner put together a timeline that shows Catherine started stabbing John while he was sleeping. He woke up from being stabbed and began to run. They run through the house together, but Catherine was able to catch him and kept stabbing him. The blood residue on the front door suggested that at some point, John was able to get out of the house, but it's believed that in the process of him getting out, he fell and Catherine dragged him back inside. How terrible. Once they were back inside, Catherine continued to stab him while he bled out on the floor. The house was full of bloody handprints all over the walls which showed that John was attempting to use the walls to hold himself up and get away from Catherine, but unfortunately this did not work. Isn't that horrific? That is, that's such a terrible way to die, just continuously being stabbed to death. 37 times, in both the front and the back. So basically, I mean, I can only imagine what the crime scene looked like, but 37 times on both sides is quite a lot. And just the fact that he did try to get away and was using the wall to... I mean, I can only imagine what the crime scene looked like and all the handprints all over the walls. Clearly, you can see that he was trying to survive and it was not working out for him. I can't even imagine being him and knowing I got outside the house, hoping somebody would be able to hear me, and then just to be dragged back in. How defeating. Wow, I can't even imagine how horrible that was. Catherine was seen leaving the house after John had been killed. 
for several hours, in fact. She was seen going to an ATM and taking out $1,000 cash. She returned to the home hours later. This is when it's believed to be that Catherine skinned John's body. What? Right? But are you ready for this part? No. <laughs> no, no, I'm, no, no, I'm, no, I'm not. not. She was able to skin his entire body in one piece. Police were able to identify that it was, in fact, one whole piece of skin starting from his head all the way down to his toes and this was found hanging on a meat hook in one of the rooms in the house i'm gonna pause right there so that can sink in can you believe that one piece this is the part where i told you earlier that i was eating when i was doing the research and i definitely had regrets and stopped eating immediately but i just i mean it's horrible but what kind of precision that must have taken to one whole piece and how could you do that like what kind of person i have no words but i I can't really say that i'm surprised that she was able to skin him all in one piece just because earlier right We had talked about her being quite the interior decorator and she had decorated their homes, the previous homes, with animal skins. So she's had so much training up until this point. I feel like she has been training to do this type of crime since her teenage years. Well, and she worked at the slaughterhouse. Remember, that was her dream job where she would remove the organs from the animals. And I mean, look how excited she got when she got that knife set. So I feel like she just, and she was a fabric cutter. Let's not forget about that. So clearly she had some experience, but I definitely think the dream job of working at the slaughterhouse, which was a little weird. I'm not sure that would be someone's dream job. If it is, that's cool. But I feel like that probably definitely gave her the experience that she would need. Are you speechless? Yeah, I can't pick my mouth up off the floor. But speaking of dream jobs, side notes, everybody. Do you do you remember what you always say is your dream job? To not have a job. No, to be. <laughs> no, to be like a plumber. Oh, that's true. Yeah, I do have a weird, a weird fascination with, you know, cleaning out the drains in the house and just finding all that gunk that's down there. You know, it's, it's not just the drains in the house. Everybody listen. Okay, there's there are people and I'm very OCD. There are people that like things nice and neat in a particular way. That is me. Brittany, on the other hand, has an obscene, obscene obsession <laughs> and weird fascination okay, with pulling, like, you know, when you go and clean the shower drains and you pull hair and gunk and things like that, Brittany, it makes Brittany's day. And I can be working in my office <laughs> and all of a sudden down the hall, because Brittany cleans the house every weekend. That's Religiously. Like, she does. That's her routine because we have two dogs. And if you don't, right, they have tons of hair. Anyway, point aside. So I'll be in my office and I'll be working or doing whatever I'm doing in there. And all of a sudden down the hall or from downstairs, I can hear Brittany go, oh my God, babe, babe, come here, look. Okay. And I, I know what's happening. And so I'm like, oh yeah, that's really nice. Cause I don't care to see it. It's not exciting or fascinating to me. It's disgusting to me. And here's Brittany going, and then she'll run into my office in hand with all of this gunk. Hair that she's pulling out or she'll be doing the laundry. And you know, when you take out the lint 
basket thing or whatever that you have to clear all the lint. She's shoving it in my face for me to see it. Like well, it's just it's- amazing the dog hair that gets, you know, I feel like if anyone has dogs, they understand. But let me tell you, you know, when I vacuum and then I get so excited and I'm just like, look at this filth because you're just, it's amazing. You're washing it go away. I used to, I haven't done it in a really long time. My mom understands. So I, I about, guess I was just I guess about to say, you mom. get this psychosis fetish, a weird obsession from your mom. I do. We used to text pictures of it to each other. Like, look what I just cleaned. I rem- look what I just cleaned I out of my drain. I remember you doing that when we first started dating and I was like, what the hell is happening? You know what though? We always have clean drains. It's true. And we've always got a clean house. That is very, very true. <laughs> anyway, so that's what it reminded me of, you know, coming from her being a butcher and having a dream job. And then there's you who just always says, want to be a plumber. Yeah. Right. Right. Anyway. No, I guess that makes sense. But I had to pause right there because the thought of what those police officers had to see is just crazy. And I feel like they were scarred for life. You oh, would yeah. never forget that. No, definitely. Never. I, I do wonder, though, if this was the worst thing that they have ever seen or if there has been worse. I don't know. It was said that the feet of his skin were dangling on the floor while the rest of the skin was hanging from the meat hook. The autopsy did reveal that he was not alive during the skinning. Thank God. Right? But skinning him isn't the worst. I don't know. After she skinned him, she took 45 minutes to decapitate him. She began to cut up the other parts of his body and began to cook them. What? Is this a cannibal story? It is. Oh, no. I've been waiting so long to do one, and oh, you had no. no idea coming into this. I didn't and I'm even, just... I can't say that I'm surprised, but I'm still surprised. I didn't know that there were women cannibals. I think there that that's are. very sexist for me to say. You know, I just... But it's true. I feel like they're not highly reported like a man is. So it was, you know, no, finding a I woman feel like is... I like women serial killers... Are, well, she's not technically a serial killer, right? She's just a killer, unless right. she killed and ate multiple people. But <laughs> I feel like women killers or murderers in general are not as hyped as men, men. murderers. Yeah, right. For whatever reason. Anyway. She prepared a full course meal with his body parts. The meal included a baked potato, pumpkin beetroot, zucchini, yellow squash, cabbage, and gravy. Catherine made multiple plates. She had placed these at the dinner table with a full place setting for each. On two of the place settings, she had two name tags, and those were the names of John's children. Oh, my God. She had prepared to serve his children, their father, for dinner. These kids were going to eat this meal without knowing it was their dad. Luckily, the police were able to get there before the kids were there to see any of the crime scene or eat the meal. I wonder if she was going to clean up the crime scene before serving them the food. I bet you she would have, but I really believe that she was going to go through with serving them the food. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, clearly Clearly, she had the whole place setting. Thank God the police got there in time. Could you imagine? Too bad they didn't get there earlier, but yeah. (laughs) A note was found in the house on a picture of John that said, Quote, time got you back, Jonathan, for raping my daughter. You to Beck for little John, now playing with little John's dick, John Price. End quote. What? Exactly. I had to listen to that and reread that multiple times because that was 
a lot of jumble. I just want to say that it was proved that these rape allegations were not true, and Beck is the name of John's daughter. So I believe the way the note reads, she's basically stating that John raped Catherine's daughter, which again was not true, but I'm not really sure how his daughter came into play. I don't know if Catherine was trying to insinuate that he was also raping her, or if this was, you know, I'm gonna feed you to your children and that's how I'm going to get you back. I don't know. She clearly was in a mental health crisis. Yeah. So the note obviously made sense to her, but I wanted to put that in there. I feel like it's important. I wonder if she was projecting maybe because of all of her past trauma, right? And the allegations of her being sexually abused by other family members, maybe she just got everything in the timelines completely mixed up and unfortunately her psychosis just really broke right this last man well and i mean she was in the house like i said earlier but she had taken so many pills that she wasn't even aware that the police were going through the house at the time or that anyone was even there so i wonder if when she was writing this she just had so many pills in her system she also didn't even know what she was saying you know Yeah. Catherine was arrested and she offered to plead guilty to the charge of manslaughter. Well, that was very considerate. Very kind, Catherine. (laughs) Obviously, the plea was rejected. What? She was arraigned on March 2nd for murdering John Price. She entered into a not guilty plea for this. (laughs) I'm confused. So she wanted to offer herself to plead guilty to manslaughter, but then as soon as they took that, well, it was never on the table. I see. She wasn't going to say that she murdered him. I see. Okay. That's right. Her trial began on October 1st, 2001, and the crime scene photos were so horrific in this case that the judge offered members of the jury to excuse themselves from viewing the pictures if they weren't comfortable with them. Oh my gosh, I can only imagine these poor jury members. Yeah, that would definitely be a case that you would not forget. No. Catherine was declared sane and fit to stand trial. Oh, see, I don't agree with that. No? No, because she's not sane. Well, Catherine went under evaluation by two different doctors, and both stated that she suffered from borderline personality disorder. Mm. Two days into the trial, Catherine decided to plead guilty. She didn't want to go through with the trial. I think it was too much for her. So she just went ahead and decided, I'm going to plead guilty. Even though she pled guilty, she refused to take any kind of responsibility And would not accept the fact that she actually did this. Well, that has to do with her borderline personality disorder, but yeah. Catherine Knight was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. The judge in her case actually placed a note in her case file that said to never be released, which is saying so much. I mean, it should have been that her first few visits in the psychiatric hospital. Oh, for sure. But the fact that she was already sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole and he still put a note in there that said never be released, that says a lot. She was Australia's first woman to ever be sentenced to life without the possibility of parole. She is still in custody today and she is still alive to this day. She still refuses to take responsibility for anything that happened. That was the story of Catherine Knight, the cannibal killer. What did you think? My mind is blown. So she has how many kids? Four or five? Four or five kids? Yeah. Yeah. And two kids with the she last She essentially guy. had a kid basically with every man that she entered yes. into a relationship with. I feel like Melissa, the daughter, her very first daughter, right? Mm-hmm. 
that one was traumatic. I think that she did the most harm to Melissa. Well, attempted to. That was the one that, you know, she left on the train tracks. She swayed back and forth in the yeah, stroller and I was trying to flip her into the... I wouldn't say she's... Melissa's the one that she did the most harm to. I, I think that the last two have quite some trauma. Not physically, right? Not right. from being physically right. abandoned or placed in harm's way, but the idea that you lived with this woman and your dad and this woman were married and she literally had the intent of feeding you your own father. That to me is way more traumatic. Well, those are John Price's kids. Yes, that's yeah. what I'm saying. Right. So the first daughter, I'm saying, yes, she yeah. did put in harm's way, but I don't think that outweighs <laughs> yeah. the trauma no, of the last no. two kids. No, I'm definitely not saying that one's trauma is greater than the other, but... Oh, I am. It's... Oh, okay. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> We're I am, just I'm, that. I'm <laughs> saying the last two, I feel like, <laughs> were way worse off. So as you know, I just am super interested in cannibalism cases. I always have I been. Know, you're such a weirdo, which they... it makes me so nervous now <laughs> after hearing this. If I, I swear to God, if I come home and there are random butcher oh knives gosh. above our bed, I... I'm divorcing you. I would never. I will take our but two I kids just, and leave. <laughs> the logic, I just never understand the logic behind cannibal cases because I never understand the thought of eating another human being. I will never get it, but I do find it very intriguing. So the fact that I was able to find a case about a woman mm -hmm. was so crazy. I just knew we had to do it, but Wow, that really took us for a spin, didn't it? Well, I don't know if a lot of people know this, but most individuals that believe in cannibalism usually, I think it's said to be with any killer or serial killer, right? When we had talked about a couple of episodes ago, the profiling of a serial killer, yeah. like what are the check? Did right. they have two parents? Did they get divorced? Did were they, they harm animals? Yes, right. were they abused? A lot of the cannibal individuals do have really severe abuse right. cases from the past or abuse trauma. Well, and there's a lot of cannibal cases that it's usually men, but it basically covers them having these online chats in the deep dark web, right? But then they never go through with it. So then becomes the question of, can someone get in trouble for the thoughts that they're having, right? We watched a documentary on that not long ago where he was having thoughts. Oh, is this at the of, police officer yes, in New York? Yes. yes, where he was having thoughts of cannibalism, right? And he was chatting with mm -hmm. other people on the deep dark web but he never acted on it so then became this huge debate and discussion on well can he really be guilty for his thoughts no. I mean he never acted on it I don't think you can be guilty for your thoughts in my mind again okay, and this is a really bad comparison right so in the state of Utah there's a really big LDS community and the LDS community does not appreciate swearing Right? right. So they will come up with substitute words. So dang, heck, gosh, darn fetch, it, things like that. But <laughs> yeah. in my mind, if you are substituting those specific words in your mind, so in your subconscious, you're actually saying the real swear word, right? Right. Not right. out loud because you have to associate the real word in order to project the substitute. So are you not then still swearing? Yeah. Just because you're not saying it out loud, are you still swearing? Right, because obviously the thought crosses your mind yes. and you're Which replacing the, it with a different uh, yes, word. And the actual word, right. you say it in your mind. So you are potentially swearing, right. right? But you're not projecting said swear word. 
Right. So I know that's a really bad example, but that goes to say, if you are thinking these thoughts, will you act on them? I guess the question can be said for people that go to grocery stores and maybe they aren't financially inept in that moment, right? And they just want something that they want and they can't afford it. And they think, oh man, if I were this type of person, I would just steal it. Yeah. But does that mean that they will commit that crime? Right. Usually, no. Right. Right. So I I think it just depends on the individual's perspective. Yeah, definitely. I'm so excited I got to share that story with you, though. Aren't there people, speaking of the deep, dark web, I know that they're, they talk about cannibals going on there and like sharing recipes or, or whatever, but there, isn't there also a really large community that wants to be eaten yes by, by cannibals yes there are people on there that want to be eaten and they offer specific body parts most mm-hmm. of the time it's usually body parts they can live without you know obviously like take my hand take my elbow, mm-hmm. whatever it may be so but that- they offer specific price points and then they want people to eat them yeah so i know that there is a case and i think he's german uh-huh and he was a cannibal and he was on the deep dark web and he found somebody he basically put an ad out there and this i think it was a male answered the ad and he right. said i would like to take you up on this offer and he goes to this guy's house and he literally offered his life up to him and this guy took his life so in that type of case right Is he a murderer? That is such a good question. You know what I mean? That really makes you, it's not an automatic like yes or no for me. Mm -hmm. I could really go either way. And there's so many things that factor into that. I guess. Because I mean, he's, I don't know. Is he a murderer? Yes, because he did murder said individual. So by, by just that alone, yes, he is. But said individual is like, here you go, have my life. Exactly. So is it ethical? Right. Right. How, I mean, it's unethical to kill another human being. Or to eat them. Just to throw that in there. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Because as carnivores, we shouldn't be consuming meat. That's We in no way support this on our podcast here. Just to throw that in there. (laughs) Thank you for letting people know that we. Sometimes you got to let people know. (laughs) That we're anti-cannibal. Great. Thank you. Just in case everybody (laughs) needed that. It's good to throw that out there. (laughs) But I mean, at the same time, if an individual is offering up their life and somebody takes them up on it are they committing a crime wow i just want you to know i'm really going to be thinking about that all week yeah that's wow i i love when our cases end like that you know they really make you think about it that was a good one these cases are crazy welcome to true crime we're glad you're here i am (laughs) appalled i don't think we'll be eating lunch today Yeah, definitely not hungry after that. (laughs) Before I end, let me tell you some tea time. Oh, thank God. Did you see how I switched it up there? Because the last episode, you called me out on my format and I kept saying the same thing. (laughs) I was waiting for you to notice. That's right. I totally forgot about. Switched up my line there. (laughs) Recently, a woman in Fresno, California was stopped at a DUI checkpoint for being drunk. Ever helpful, she offered up this info. 
My husband's right behind me, and he's even drunker than I am. I feel like this is something you would do. <laughs> As I was typing that, I knew you were going to say that, this is, too. This is you. Hey, police officer, <laughs> I'm clearly breaking the law, but number one, I don't drink and drive. Just just so we're aware, I want to throw that out there. And I do not get more intoxicated than Brittany. I very rarely actually drink. But this is something that you would do to me just to get it off of you. I know you. Oh, man, that was a good one. You can be a terrible human being sometimes. Wow. (laughs) And then there were knives above our bed. (laughs) No one would be surprised. I'm just kidding. I would be. (laughs) If I don't show up on the next episode, it was Brittany. (laughs) Brittany killed me. All right, so speaking of stupid things. Oh, see, we went to the same line. I was Uh waiting for you to switch it up, but I won't call you out. I'm surprised. Go ahead. You did last time, or you tried to. (laughs) All right, you ready for this? Yeah. I've got two for you. Oh, wow. Because they're they're pretty significantly short, so I feel like they compensate, right? I'm ready. So singing in the shower is fun until you get soap in your mouth. (laughs) And then do you know what it becomes? What? Then it becomes a soap opera. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah, you're welcome. All right. So what did the llama say to his date? I don't know what. You want to go on a picnic? I'll pack a lunch. <laughs> I'll pack a lunch. That one was my favorite for sure. <laughs> Before we end this episode, we wanted to announce that our podcast, The Tea on Crime, has now joined Patreon. For those of you that aren't familiar with what that is, it is a monthly subscription page platform that will be ad-free with bonus episodes that are exclusive only to our Patreon listeners. So head on over to our page at patreon.com slash tea on crime to hear more tea being spilled. We're really excited to provide you with bonus content. And then as always, everybody, we really appreciate your support. That's it for today's episode. For all of our teaaholics that enjoyed our show today, please remember to go and rate the show on whatever platform you are listening to. Give us a follow on Facebook at Tea on Crime Podcast, Instagram at Tea on Crime Podcast, Twitter at Tea on Crime Pod, and TikTok at Tea on Crime Podcast. I'm your host, Britt. And I'm your co-host, Jessica. And we will be back next week to serve you more tea on all things true crime. Bye!